Summer is coming. Time to turn off the TV and turn on a clever little app called Audible. With Audible, you can listen to the stories you love while doing the things you love. Outside. You know, that place you're supposed to be in the summertime. For just $14.95 a month, you get a credit good for any audiobook. If you don't like it, exchange it any time. Or roll your credits over to the next month if you don't use them. So get up and get outside with Audible. Start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free at audible.com. And tonight, we're not actually going to talk about our favorite show. We're going to talk about a character, a personality, if you will, from the world of professional wrestling, which, of course, we watch on TV. So it kind of fits. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, the Rattledge Broadcasting Network remembers Bruno San Martino. From the World Wide Wrestling Federation and the 2013 WWE Hall of Fame. I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. And I'm going to bring on my guest who g- kicked open the office door here at the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. He said, he pointed at me and he said, You know what, brother? He said, you know what this network really needs to do? They need to remember Bruno San Martino. Know your roots, as H2O once said. And he demanded that we do an entire show dedicated to the man who recently passed away. Uh, so here's the man that makes the demands, the punchy pugilist, totally 80s, Pat Mullen. How do you do, sir? Uh, I do better than when our subject is unfortunately something like this. But at the same time, there's a reason I'm called the Bruno San Martino of the Rattleton Broadcasting Network. So it would ha- this has to be done, and I'm the only one who needed to be here to do it. Yeah, it, where, when it comes to Bruno San Martino and old school wrestling, you are the one man gang. You 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 can do the show all by yourself. I'm just here for the ride and to press record. Uh, let's get into it, sir. Um, we're going to break this up into three parts here. I want to hear your sort of personal connection to good old Bruno. We can talk a little bit about that. Uh, we'll get into the highlights of his career, you know, the things people need to know about this guy. Because people might not know just what Bruno Sammartino did for the world of professional wrestling, but they need to. And then lastly, we're going to do something fun here on TV Party tonight. Normally, we talk about a TV show after it's already aired. 
In this particular case, we're going to pull up an old Bruno San Martino match on the YouTubes, and we're going to commentate over it. So that'll be fun. We'll do a little watch-along, as they do on the Bruce Pritchard podcast. Uh, so let's get into it. Pat, what's your connection to good old Bruno here? How did you come to Bruno? So for long-time listeners to any of our content here that's featured me, most of you guys know that I grew up not having a choice of being a wrestling fan. Uh, my dad was a huge, huge wrestling fan, and we lived in the New York City area. We lived in Brooklyn for years and years, and he grew up in Brooklyn, and he was born in the 50s, so largely his fandom came into play in the 1960s and 70s. And in the 1960s and 70s, in the New York area, the guy who ruled the roost was Bruno. And so you could count on certain things at that point in time, and one of them was that Bruno was headlining in the garden, and you were going to get your money's worth, and you were going to see him go out there and give you the damnedest show you could see. So my dad, who basically lived through the entire San Martino era of Bruno as the top of the tops, indoctrinated me, for lack of a better word, at a young age of, you know, someone who's in the blissful years of Hulkamania, that, yeah, this is great now, but there's a guy who held the belt for twice as long as Hulk and was bigger than Hulk and all these things. And so I constantly heard the legend of Bruno and through machinations of things like Coliseum Video, through 16 millimeter film by a guy named Rocky Raymond, who taped a lot of shows in the Boston Garden from the 60s and 70s, from hearing people talk and being a little kid and watching wrestling, you know, I would hear people who would look at me and say, oh, you like wrestling, do you? And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they would say, these guys are okay, but when I was a kid, it was all about Bruno San Martino. And that name just constantly went and went and went. And so I had to research this for myself. So when I finally got to see Bruno and got to read about Bruno, it was just incredible the things you'd find out about him, almost to the point where it didn't seem like it was a real thing to accomplish. And that just mystified me, and I had to learn more. And the more I learned through reading old magazines and books and interviews and talking to people who uh, just knew his legend and everything, it really hit home that, oh my gosh, this is this is this guy was for real. And so I just had the highest regard and respect and just had to learn more. And the more I learned, the more I, I grew in respect and admiration for this man. You know, I have to be honest, you know, being an, an Italian American growing up in New York, yeah, we, we knew who Bruno was. But, I, you know, I, like you, born in 1976, uh, 11 years before the man retired, uh, I, I grew up on Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan is sort of is the beginning of wrestling for me. And, we, you know, people who have heard us talk about wrestling on here before know that uh, my favorites were like the Ultimate Warrior and whatnot, that I wasn't so much a Hulkamaniac. But I have to credit Hulk Hogan as being the the beginning for me you know that's my starting point uh, I like you had to go back once I started to hear you know 
again, the you you would talk to some of the old timers at the Knights of Columbus and and the Sons of Italy, you know, picnic at, at uh, Wantaw Park, and they they would say, "You like that wrestling, do you? You should have been there when Bruno was the champion." The Italian, the old Italian Americans, uh, men playing bocce ball and making sausage and peppers in the park. They would ta- they would talk with such reverence about Bruno San Martino, and that's when wrestling was real. Pat Mullen, it was real to them, and he was real. Why do you? Uh, why, I don't even say why do you think. Why do you know that those old Italian men revered him so and thought? You know, rest that 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 Hulk Hogan type stuff. That's all Hollywood wrestling. But when Bruno did it, it was real. Why do you th- why do you know that they thought that way? You know, the thing the thing about Bruno is he was a guy who is the quintessential immigrant story that that entire generation of people and. You know their their parents and their children all look to as what's possible for them. And you know, for those who don't know, Bruno was born in Italy in the 30s, and his village became occupied by the Nazis, where they were kicked out of their home and they had to live in the mountains like refugees, surviving on snow and whatever supplies they could scrounge up and. His mother would make runs into town, into the house, risking her life to provide for her children, two of whom she lost during this time. Uh, Bruno was this sickly kid with rheumatic fever. When they finally got to come to America in 1950 uh, to reunite with his dad and live, settle in Pittsburgh, he was 14 years old. He was 84 pounds, didn't speak a word of English, was beaten up, made fun of, and just you know, a, a Jewish kid that he befriended took pity on him and introduced him to the Y, and that's where he got started with weightlifting and, you know, just trying to become someone that nobody would pick up, or pick on, I should say. And just through sheer hard work and determination, he built himself up and. I'm not even talking just in becoming the world's most famous wrestler for years and highest paid wrestler, but just in terms of what he did for himself. He went from being this 84-pound weakling in four years to, in his high school yearbook as a senior, being called Muscles San Martino at 225 pounds, who was the star fullback of the Shenley High School football team. And just this incredible phenom that he was in that respect, let alone going up to the top of the wrestling industry, having a Rolls Royce, getting a private audience with the Pope, just insane heights that you would never see as possible unless you saw someone do it. And he was that example that not just old Italians, but all the immigrants from Europe and what have you would come and they could point to him and be like, you got to be like him. You got to be like Bruno. We come here with nothing and so did Bruno, but look at what Bruno did. And it's incredible when you really get to hear, you know, Bruno tell the story, which is available. But to read it, it, you can't put into words just that it's the legitimate American dream. You are uh, born the same year that he retired from wrestling, 1987. So uh, clearly you didn't get to see him uh, wrestle a live match. Yeah, he actually wrestled his last match ever on the day I was born, believe it or not. 
Oh, you guys are inextricably linked. Um, so here's my question to you. Do you remember your fir- the first time you actually got to see a Bruno San Martino match? Or what's your most what's the most memorable match um, from your first exposures to Bruno? Uh, the first Bruno match I ever got to see was Bruno teaming up with his son David to wrestle Johnny Valiant and Brutus Beefcake. And that was Bruno's first uh, comeback match in his 85 to 87 comeback. And, you know, I, I remember because it spawned out of WrestleMania where Bruno was in David's corner against Beefcake with Johnny V in his corner. And Bruno kind of got involved at the end of it and the crowd just went apeshit. And, like, it's you wouldn't believe, like, a crowd could be that rabid. And you look at Bruno, he was just there at ringside in a sweater. You know, he's an older-looking guy at that point in time. And you're like, why are they so crazy for this guy? And it really kicked into me when he was getting as big a reaction as Hogan did. So then on the tape I was watching, it's a costume video, they follow up with Bruno and David teaming together. And you see them in the ring, and Bruno's in as good a shape as everybody, or better shape than everybody in the match, and he's in his 50s. And you look at this guy, he looks like a you know a shaved ape, but in a good way. <laughs> and he's up and I said there's something to this guy there's there's a little bit of special to this guy and so I would always try to seek out Bruno matches as much as I could and that that's like the first real memory I have of watching Bruno wrestle and it was him as an older guy and the next one was a good one he wrestled Randy Savage uh, wow. and he's obviously in the twilight of his career and Randy is in all his glory as a worker maybe in his real prime and I've seen Randy, who's good enough to have matches with guys who didn't hold up their end, who were older in their career. But this was very much Bruno giving as much as he got. And I just said, this is so cool. This guy really is the best wrestler ever. And I had to see more. And, you know, I love Harley Race, all the respect in the world for Harley Race. I watched Harley that same year, from that same year, have a match with Randy. And it was just nothing as good as what Randy and Bruno were able to do Really, more than anything, just because of the intensity Bruno brought. Bruno San Martino, uh, part of his legacy, maybe the biggest part of his legacy, is that he was one of the longest reigning W. For this, for the sake of keeping confusion to a minimum, let me do a quick sidebar. So, the WWE, as we know it now, World Wrestling Entertainment, is owned by Vince McMahon Jr. Um, bought the company from his father, and under his father, Vince Sr., it was Worldwide Wrestling Federation, and it was a territory in the Northeast. And Bruno was the crown jewel of said territory for, what was it, like two years, four thousand... Um, it kind of had to be more than two years, because I think they said in days it's something like 4,000 and it's, it's uh, a total of, it's a, Yeah, it's a total of 4,040 days... Mm-hmm. His first his first reign was May 17, 1963 to January 8, 1971, so just shy of 8 years. That's what uh, okay. I was getting my two, his, two 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 reigns in 8 years crossed. Yeah, and his his second reign was from December 10th, 1973 to April 30, 1977. So that one just shy of 4 years. So every territory has their guy that they kind of always come back to their their safe bet, you know. Um, Memphis had Lawler, Tex, um, 
Dallas had the Von Ericks, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The, you know, the Crockett, Mid-Atlantic area had Flair. You know, Flor- would Florida have Dusty? Um, f- f- so did most. So did most of the Crockett territory. So you had, uh, you know, you, you had a, a guy or a handful of guys in every territory that the promoters could always could always uh, depend on um, to carry the company, to carry the belt. Bruno's kind of special in that, as like I said, he had this ridiculously long reign. Why do you think uh, Vince Sr. and those that uh, ran that territory left the title on Bruno for as long as they did without mixing it up the way some of the other territories did? Uh, continued success. That's, that's the whole long and short of it. Uh, Bruno almost never got his run in New York because prior to becoming champion, Vince Sr. actually had him blackballed for a little while as a promoter um, because Bruno would make shots in Pittsburgh and around the territory, and Bruno at one point was being offered money to wrestle in Chicago, and Bruno was going to take it as he was starting to come up the ranks in New York. Well, what Vince Sr. did is Vince Sr. double-booked him, and in those days, state athletic commissions were still involved in professional wrestling, and if you no-show to booking, other promoters would honor the blackballing of you. And that's what happened. So Bruno had no idea what to do, except for one of the guys he had wrestled with told him, you know, you'd probably do pretty good in Toronto because there's a big Italian population there, and it's not in the States, so they can't do anything about you being suspended. So he wrestled for Frank Tunney in Toronto and became a huge attraction. He was doing strongman feats in the papers and everything. And when Vince Sr. saw this, he goes, we need to make things right with Bruno and get this guy back. Because Bruno had been doing great business before he left. And the title at the time was on Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, the original Nature Boy. And Buddy was starting to pass his prime. And the McMahons, uh, well, the, the mcmahon Tootsmont regime, which is what ruled the Capital Wrestling Corporation, were worried that not only would Buddy not last, but that Buddy couldn't draw as well as Bruno could. So they made the decision, we need to get him back, and Bruno said, well, to get me back, you got to make me the top guy. And they did it. And had Bruno's popularity ever waned or numbers dropped off, and not necessarily just in one or in every arena, but maybe in one or two key arenas he couldn't fill, they probably would have taken the title off of him. That's why they were so adamant about keeping the title on Buddy Rogers at one point, because Luthez, who could draw well in St. Louis and some other places, Luthez never drew in New York. But when they had this consistent guy selling out all the time, even more so than the previous big New York draw, Argentina Rocca, they knew they needed him. And literally, it got to the point where Bruno was the one who told them, I need time away. I want to see my family. I need to take some time to heal my body up. And that's eventually why the title was taken off of him and put on Ivan Koloff for a couple weeks before they put Pedro Morales on as their champion, but it's just he was able to consistently bring in business, not just one arena, not just two arenas, but every arena in the territory. What do you think his uh, the pinnacle of his career is? What match? Do you think it's the, the Shea Stadium match with Sabisco or his... Uh, what, his match against Luthez? What do you, you know, when, when you look at it, what's his Hogan-Andre? You know, it's pretty hard to 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 not say Zabisco 
solely because at that point Bruno had already basically for more intensive purposes retired not officially but he was no longer the champion he wasn't wrestling championship matches he was doing commentary on the the, t- the TV show and yet he still had enough you know drawing ability in this angle with Larry who yes the art the angle was masterfully crafted but Larry had never been anything more than just Bruno's protege and a tag team guy. He was not a main event guy. So let me stop you there, because a lot of people listening to this are, are probably getting their first exposure to, to, to what a Bruno San Martino is. Why don't you, in 50 words or less, talk about the angle for, for a bit of it. What, what, what was the story between the living legend, Larry Zabisco, uh, and, his, and Bruno San Martino? Well, Bruno had broken Larry into the business, literally, in both storyline and real life. Larry was a kid who was a fan of Bruno, lived not far from him, basically stalked him and begged him to train him, which Bruno finally agreed to on the print on the principle that Larry attend and graduate college and get an education. And Bruno eventually helped Larry get his foot in the door of the WWF after he got some experience. Larry was doing okay. He had held the world tag team titles with Tony Gurria, but was an underneath guy. And Larry was kind of at the point where he was like I need to make my name, and I can't do that, Bruno, as long as you're here, unless I go in with you and prove I'm just as good as you. Bruno loves Larry. He won't do it. He won't wrestle him. Larry says he's going to retire because he can't ever break out of Bruno's shadow. Bruno says, I can't have that. You're too good at this. You need a future. I'll I'll wrestle you, but I'm not going to try to beat you. It's an exhibition, scientific. That's how we're going to do it. They wrestle. Bruno's getting the better of Larry pretty consistently. Zabisco snaps and assaults Bruno with punches, whacks him and breaks a wooden chair over his head, five alarm blade job, we're off and running. It's Bruno versus Judas. Some people might ask, I know I'd be one of those people, Did uh, one, did Bruno and Hogan ever wrestle? And if not, uh, was, there ever any, was there ever any consideration to maybe turn Bruno heel and have him, you know, add to, uh, I don't want to call it legacy because that did note that Hogan had, you know, been at the top of the company longer than he was when Bruno, when Bruno would have been relevant. Um, more to further make Hogan than Hogan was already made. Uh, any consideration for me, you know, for putting Bruno in like the Piper or Orndorff uh, role, you know, the early feuds at the onset of the, uh, you know, of the Hogan era? You know, it, it was never Bruno considered for that role so much as Bob Backlund. They wanted to turn Bob heel and kind of bridge the gap that way. Um, Bruno, I, I I can't imagine they didn't know what a bad idea that would be to try to have him as the heel against Hogan because as much of a new audience as there was, that old sentimental audience was still going to be there and nobody wanted to boo Bruno. In fact, Hogan, as great a draw as Hulk became, Hulk was not a consistent steady draw in the major arenas of the Northeast Circuit until well after his match with Andre at WrestleMania three. That was part of the impetus for Bruno's comeback, is so he could fill the arenas that Hogan couldn't. And that's not a knock on Hulk, but Bruno's a tough act to follow. And so there was never that thought, and I it just it would have been a terrible idea to try to have him go heel and 
you know, get cheered and try to get Hogan cheered against him. Uh, it, it's just it's the definition of what you call going against the grain. The same reason why they wouldn't turn, they didn't run with the Jake the Snake Hogan program because Jake the Snake in certain arenas against Hogan, like in Providence, Rhode Island, was getting cheered. Now, Hogan actually wrestled in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation as a heel. Um, this is well before the Hulk Hogan that we know and love today. This is this is Irish Hogan, <laughs> as it were. Um, and I think this is pre-Rocky Three. It's actually Rocky Three that ends that relationship initially. Uh, any any matches that you can recall between heel heel Hogan and Bruno San Martino? If I'm not mistaken, they actually were scheduled once to wrestle. Um... And it wasn't in any major show or anything. I think it was supposed to take place at a Spectrum show in 1979 or 1980. But they flipped the booking. And I think – I forget who Bruno ended up working, but it wasn't Hogan. So really the only time Bruno and Hogan ever shared a ring together was the day I mentioned earlier, August 29th, 1987. Bruno and Hulk actually teamed in Bruno's last match against King Kong Bundy and the one-man gang at the Baltimore uh, Civic Center. God, that's a lot of beef. Oof. <laughs> Bruno's the little guy in the match. Yeah, really. Oh, God. I had a Bruno San Martino uh, wrestling figure. Uh, which was really Oh, yeah, fun. the LJN figure. I still have it. Yeah, which is weird because like he, they made him hairy, but the hair is the same color as his skin. It was bizarre. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's fast forward here. So... The WWE starts its Hall of Fame. Its initial inductee, I believe, is Andre the Giant. And, of course, Hogan gets in there. Piper gets in there. Junkyard Dog. A lot of the rock and wrestling guys are in there you know, right at the, right at the onset of this thing. And for years, uh, Bruno Sammartino was offered the opportunity to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. But he had declined. Now, in recent years, uh, I like to cheekingly call it the, uh, the WWE Apology Tour. Uh, where everyone they've ever screwed over or had a feud with has somehow made it into the Hall of Fame. You know, we're sorry. Here's here here's money. Here's whatever it is you need. You know, and into the Hall of Fame you go. Um, you know, so they've done that done that with the Warrior. They just did that with Goldberg. Uh, they've done that with with you know Bret Hart. They've done that with uh, one of those guys on the Apology Tour was Bruno San Martino, and again, 2013. Why don't you talk a little bit about what in the hell happened between the WWE under Vince McMahon and Bruno that there was such uh, sour, well, I don't want to say sour grapes, but there were there were such hard feelings between them for so long. Well, when Bruno took his second title reign, it was only supposed to be for a year as Bruno doing them a favor to get attendance back up in certain arenas that had dropped while Bruno was gone. Um, because Pedro Morales was a very strong draw in New York with the Puerto Rican fans, but he didn't draw well in their other major arenas like the Boston Garden, the Spectrum, uh, the Cap Center. He, he just couldn't sustain the audiences there. So Vince Sr., uh, facing a lot of financial peril at that point, even talking about potentially rejoining the NWA, was a, he was out of ideas other than we got to bring Bruno back. And... Bruno agreed to come back for a year under the auspices that he would only work the major arenas, your Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, Spectrum, no no secondary arenas like, you know, uh, the Sunnyside Gardens in Queens and those types, and that he would get a higher gate percentage of the arenas that he headlined. 
Well, that one year turned into a near four-year run. Bruno didn't get the money he was supposed to have gotten from it. And so things were contentious at that point. You add into the fact that Bruno came back early from a broken neck to bail out Vince Sr. for the Ali Inoki fight, where Vince Sr.'s card, which was then headlined by Bruno versus Stan Hansen at Chase Stadium, was the only card to not lose money because of Bruno bringing the live attendance up. And basically that parlayed later on into Bruno being given a job as a color commentator along with Vince. Where things really get bad is when Bruno's son David signs with the WWF in 1984. And this is done in the Hulkamania beginnings. And Vince Jr., who was in charge at the time, sees his arenas drop. Because Hulk cannot sustain month-to-month business in certain venues. Vince Jr. believes that the way to get these arenas up is to get Bruno going again. David puts pressure on Bruno to do it, saying it could be good for my career if you do this, because then it's me and you together riding this wave. Bruno agrees to do it. David, who really doesn't get any traction going up or down the card, starts to get hot about everything and says Bruno's not doing enough to help him and he's never going to get anywhere, and quits the WWF. In order to not get permanently blackballed, Bruno stays wrestling to try to keep David as an option that Vince can bring back later. He has his commentary job still, but he's wrestling, and he really doesn't want to be wrestling. And this goes back to Bruno remembering a match he had with Gorgeous George in 1960, when the audience was talking about how fat George got and how terrible he looked and how far past his prime he was. Bruno was always very conscious of that. And... He didn't want to be that guy. So he, he felt embarrassed at that point in his career going out and doing what he did, even though he looked as good or better than a lot of guys and certainly better than anybody who wasn't on gas at the time. So Bruno gets David one more shot in 1988. David comes back tanned and ripped with long blonde hair, uh, very much in the mold of Hulk Hogan. And... David gets into an altercation with a fan on his first night back and punches the fan and gets fired. Bruno at that point says, there's nothing else I can do. I'm done, Vince. I'm leaving. You still owe me money and royalties I haven't gotten. David's not coming back here. We're we're through. And Bruno had gotten so disgusted with the steroid use, the drug use, everything that was going on. He didn't want, this wasn't his wrestling anymore. He didn't want to be a part of it. And he felt Vince perpetuated a lot of that and encouraged a lot of that. Yeah, according to the Wikipedia, on the on, under the non-wrestling roles in WWE Hall of Fame, right at the top it says, after leaving the WWF, San Martino became an outspoken critic of the path on which Vince McMahon had taken professional wrestling. He particularly criticized the use of steroids and vulgar storylines. He appeared in the media in opposition... Uh, to the WWE on such shows as the Phil Donahue Show, Geraldo, and CNN. Um, in 2013, he accepts the invitation to the induction to the Hall of Fame uh, because he was, this is a quote, he was satisfied with the way the company had addressed its concerns about rampant drug use as well as vulgarity. All right. Well, and there's, there's <laughs> a big, there's... 
I got to talk big about that. Chunky the story missing. Well, I was, was going to say. I was going to say. Well, I, I want you to have your say, but let me just address that really quick. So the rampant drug use was addressed because Eddie Guerrero drops dead, and I don't remember what year, but um, two thousand five. Two thousand. Yeah, Eddie Guerrero drops dead in two thousand five, and shortly thereafter, Chris Benoit murders his family. It was either not. De- not- not to mention the litany of bodies that developed between 2002 and 2004. Yeah, there's a um, period where everybody that you ever, the, where like the entire, what was it, the entire WrestleMania 7 or 8 card is like now dead. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. You yeah. know, people are dropping at the age of 40, you know, and 50 years old, somewhere in that, in that, you know, well before the average, the average lifespan uh, of people these days, you know, in in a first world country, is about eighty to ninety years old, and people are people who wrestle for Vince are dropping between forty and fifty. It was either deal with this or get sued again. Is where they were going. Number one, number two, they went they they dropped the vulgarity, and this has been a big bone of contention for people who want to go back to the salad days of the um, of the Attitude Era. That was money driven. They, they they had tapped the well as much as they could with the tits and ass of the Attitude Era, and they realized there was more money to be had by going back to PG as far as sponsorships and other opportunities than they would being, you know, a ECW-type ad- adult-oriented program. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to turn it back over to you, but boy, is that some horseshit. Well, and let's not forget Linda McMahon's congressional run That's right. Boot. Um, That's right. But the biggest factor in terms of that was Triple H was the one constantly trying to reach out to Bruno because say what you want about Triple H, Triple H is somebody who genuinely does love wrestling. He loves wrestling history. And Triple H is trained by, as I think most people know, Killer Kowalski, who's a big part of early WWF history and one of Bruno's best friends and favorite opponents for years. And Triple H kind of used the, you know, Walter, who was Killer Kowalski, Walter trained me, so you know I came up the right way type of thing, to just at least get an audience with Bruno. And he was always real respectful to him. But Triple H is one of those guys who knew that the Hall of Fame really did not have any legitimacy without Bruno in it. You can say what you want to about Savage and some of the guys. They Bruno was the one guy where that Hall of Fame was never going to mean anything if he wasn't in it. So... On top of that, when they started, he just basically got Bruno to watch the show. He said, Bruno, have you watched the show in the last, you know, three years? Bruno said no. He goes, I want you to just watch a couple episodes and you'll see some of the changes we've made. So, you know, they didn't do the brawn panties matches anymore, bikini contest. They didn't have, you know, four-letter words, every other word in a promo. And they had a more athletically capable in-ring presentation, which is all stuff Bruno liked. The biggest factor was the guy named Dr. Joseph Maroon. Dr. Joseph Maroon was the guy who oversaw a lot of the programs to test for anabolics. He is based in Pittsburgh and is a surgeon. In 2011, Joseph Maroon performed heart valve surgery on Bruno Sammartino and helped to extend Bruno's life. Bruno got this guy well ahead of when he was involved in testing with WWE. And when Maroon vouched for the legitimacy of the testing, which granted mind is not capable of detecting growth hormone, but whatever, there's certainly a marked difference in the bodies you see now versus the bodies of 1988, 89, 90. And Bruno being a guy who achieves so much naturally 
was convinced by Dr. Maroon that the testing is legitimate, that a lot of these guys are hard workers in the gym and can achieve natural physiques, which is true. I don't necessarily buy it, but it, it is possible. And on top of that, there was a money issue where Bruno said, I feel like I'm owed this much, and this is my figure, and I'm not going to back off on it. It's rumored to be a quarter of a million dollars. WWE agreed to it. And then they broke the news, and everybody's jaws hit the ground. Just as an aside, you and me are someday going to have to do a show about how about the pattern of Vince McMahon not paying people, those people sort of revolting against the WWE, and then history not accounting for the fact that Vince stiffed him in the first place. You know, yeah, I mean, there, there's a bunch of examples. We touched on Warrior in the past. And that was the first one I thought of. Yeah. But that's, uh, that's for a later day. Um, I want to get to... We're, we're about the time in the show now where I want to get to the match here, but I also want you to sort of... Um, any last thoughts, words, things you wanted to say, burning desires regarding Bruno before we head into uh, the match that we're going to look at? Just Bruno is the quintessential example of a guy who made his life more than what it should have been. Bruno had every excuse in the world to be less than, and that was his motivating factor to become who he became. This great man, this great champion, this great hero uh, to so many people for so many years. Bruno took his hardship and it fueled him to be the best he could be. But he was also very humble despite all of that. Bruno married his high school sweetheart, Carol, and they were together until his last day. Bruno was a hero to the local people in Pittsburgh, liked where he lived so much that after he, he, he'd settled in Pittsburgh in his house in 1962. He had offers for houses to be built for him for free on Long Island. He said, no, I like my neighborhood. I think I'm going to stay. He would never be seen in public if there were children around drinking a glass of alcohol because he wanted them to see him as a role model and wanted to carry himself like that. Always wore suits, always drove good cars to represent wrestling, which he loved. And Bruno was a training nut, so much so that when you found out that Bruno died due to multiple organ failure and it traces back to his rheumatic fever that he had as a child that he worked so hard to overcome, he legitimately added 15 to 20 years to his life just through his, his training regimen. That's insane. A training regimen that was completely natural. No steroids, no growth hormone, nothing. And you keep in mind he held the world bench press record in 1959. He set it with 565 pounds. No bench shirts, none of the technology guys use today, none of the supplements. He did it with raw determination and training and hard work. And even when still wrestling six days a week, he set records that you wouldn't believe and could have easily been the first man to bench press 600 pounds had he committed himself to weight training instead of wrestling. He could have probably been an Olympic lifter had he not done that. But his love, his goal was wrestling, and he did it and did it arguably better than anybody and when wrestling decided that it was turning its back on him, he was fine. 
he didn't need it. He would still talk to anybody who wanted to listen to him. He would still make appearances and be so gracious to anybody who came up to him. And I had the privilege of meeting Bruno three times, and every time I just treasure them because of how genuine the man was, how kind the man was. Uh, just, you know, Dave Meltzer put a quote out that they tell you to be careful when you meet your heroes because you're bound to be disappointed. But when talking about Bruno, he said, nobody left disappointed. And that's the honest truth. Bruno's just an example of a guy who lived an honest, good, decent life filled with hard work and passion for what he did. And the man lived to be a living legend to the point where Bruno didn't need the WWE. The WWE needed Bruno. And that's, I think, maybe the greatest factor of his legacy as a performer is that they had to come to him. Had Bruno passed away and none of this reconciliation tour happened, there still would have been a big deal about Bruno. Every local paper in Pittsburgh covered it. Every would have covered it. The wrestling community as a whole, who were much more aware of things outside of the WWE bubble than they were 25 years ago, would have known and covered it and known that this was a big deal. But I'm happy that the reconciliation did happen because even for a short little while, it finally gave Bruno the recognition he deserved, that he earned, and gave people an understanding of just how important he was to the WWE to wrestling, and honestly to an entire generation of people in the Northeast who saw him as this titan and this icon and this this example of everything you could ever want to be being possible. A couple of last fun questions for you and one not-so-fun question. Um, first, if you're looking for... The WWE has a whole package of Bruno matches, so if you've got the WWE Network, you, you don't need any, a list from me. Just go watch their package. Got plenty of good Bruno there for you. But um, in the wiki, the Pro Wrestling Illustrated, match. Uh, here's a series of match of the years you should check out if you're interested in seeing Bruno in action. Uh, 1975 versus Spiros uh, Arion. 76 versus Stan Hansen in Queens, New York. Uh, 77 versus Superstar Billy Graham in Baltimore, Maryland. Shout out to the wire. Um, 1980 versus Zabisco, obviously, at the showdown at Shea Stadium in a steel cage. I would also recommend any one of the matches against Ken Patera. Those are pretty awesome. Um, and I was thinking about Ken Patera, and it, it came to mind, like, you know, if Bruno, if, if Bruno could wrestle anybody in the last 30 years, you know, who would I, who would I would have liked to have seen Bruno have a have a long feud with, and my first thought is Kurt Angle. Now that I've now that I've cho- chosen that one and took taken it from you, if you could pick any one wrestler for Bruno to have had a feud with, um, who who would you have picked? Um, I, I always love Bruno versus the real monsters, so I would probably say Vader. Wow, that's a good one. Um. Uh, Vader, and then and then maybe later on, Mark Henry. Wow, the, the, the battle of the world's strongest men. That would have been fun. That would that that, that would have been a marquee match. Um, speaking of which, speaking of monsters, did uh, was uh, Andre the Giant uh, ever uh, an opponent for Bruno? There was talk of doing Andre versus Bruno after the Ali Inoki debacle happened. Um, 
there was talk of the potential of Andre versus Bruno and happening in Shea Stadium, and that they thought they would be able to sell out the entire arena and do better closed-circuit business than Ali and Oki did, which wasn't hard, to be fair, but they thought they would be able to sell out a lot of closed-circuit venues nationally because of Andre having toured all the territories so regularly and Bruno being the top guy in the magazines that everybody knew about. And ultimately, they decided that it would have it would have kind of killed one guy a little bit, not killed them off completely, but killed off their drawing ability a little bit and it would have been a really big one-time payoff that halted a lot of down-the-road long-term plans. So ultimately, they decided not to do it, which was probably the right call because you're talking, look at how much more viability Andre had, really, till about WrestleMania three, And then Bruno himself, you know, obviously didn't stay around as long, but when right. he did come back, he was selling out everywhere. Dana White gets a time-traveling DeLorean and is able to travel through time to find an opponent, a suitable opponent for Brock Lesnar in Madison Square Garden in, the, in a UFC cage. He, get, he finds Bruno San Martino at the, at the pinnacle of his career. It's Bruno versus Brock. What do you think? Uh, I think Brock plays it safe and just shoots takedowns and doesn't try to go anywhere with them. Um, Bruno, okay, so Bruno wasn't like a, a shooter or anything like that. He worked out with Rex Perry, who is the vaunted wrestling coach at the University of Pittsburgh, and he worked out with their wrestling team. Um, he, you know, he had respect from guys like Stu Hart and everything for his strength. And in terms of Bruno being in shoots, there's really not a lot of them that have happened. Anoki uh, got a little cute with him in their early years, and Bruno basically clamped him in a front face lock, which we call a guillotine, and almost choked him out but let him go. Um, so, and aside from that, Bruno, before becoming a wrestler, they had him try out as a boxer, and he sparred with Sonny Liston while Sonny was the heavyweight champion. And he couldn't touch Sonny, but Sonny hit him a lot, and he didn't go anywhere, which is pretty good indicator that Bruno could take a punch. And when you look at the size of his neck, it's not surprising. Um, so I, I think Brock probably gets the decision, but it's not going to be an easy one. Also consider that Bruno once fought an orangutan in a cage. <laughs> and that's the picture that's going on this podcast tonight. I'm finding a picture of Bruno in an orangutan. If you, if you go to WWE Storytime, they, they, he actually tells the story, and you'll see a cartoon image of that, so use it. Well, now I know what I'm doing after this podcast. Um, last question, and then we're going to hit the video, and then we're going to get out of here. Uh, how did you... When you had found out that, obviously, one of your heroes had passed away. How did that make you feel? Whew. Oh, man. Um, you know, it was Wednesday morning at, like, probably around 9, 9.15, and I wasn't working that day. I had kind of just, you know, gotten up and had a cup of coffee and was getting ready to work out, and uh, I, I just... Uh, I get this uh, alert from Bleacher Report saying... Uh, we've learned of the passing of WWE legend Bruno San Martino. And I was just like, Oh no, no, not, not, not Bruno. Because he's just one of those guys who, yeah, you realize he was getting up in age, but he was one of those guys you just never thought would, would leave you and just pass away, especially because of, you know, what a healthy life he lived where he didn't do drugs and 
was so religious in his training. I mean, at 60 years old, he's doing curls with 60-pound dumbbells and bench pressing 225 pounds for reps. Um, you know, at 60-plus years old, it's, it's, you just never thought he would, he would go. And the biggest thing for me is that you have probably the definitive piece of wrestling history in the 60s and 70s is now gone. The the most important territory champion of all time is gone. But really just an example of a good man in a very, very oftentimes wicked business is gone. And a big chunk of integrity in the world was gone that day when Bruno died. Thank you for sharing that with us, Pat. I know, um, you know, I think my reaction to Bruno dying, you know, was... He he lived a life. He lived a good life. Uh, he lived a storybook life in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, his time had come. Obviously, he meant more to you than he did to me, though he did mean something. But it was, again, one of those stark reminders that I'm getting to the age that my parents were when a lot of their heroes and their celebrities in, are, pa- are starting to pass. Um, you know, we've lost quite a few in the last couple of years. We lost Piper. Uh... We've yeah, Dusty Rhodes. Dusty Rhodes. Even even just weeks before Bruno, you had Johnny Valiant pass away. And on the same day as Bruno, unfortunately for him, uh, Paul Jones, who was very big in Florida and the Mid-Atlantic, passed mm-hmm. away. You know, I, uh, I think the, around the time that Rogue One came out, Carrie Fisher had died. You know, and I know that's what's, we're talking wrestling and that's something different. But, you know, it's just... it's. Prince, we taught, we did a whole show about Prince because he had passed away. We've had to, we've had to do a couple of these now, and um, you know it's just a reminder to, to, to value what you've got. You know, en- enjoy the life that you have because you never know when it's going to be gone, and you know enjoy the celebrities that bring us such great joy because you never know when they're going to go either. So uh, it could be like the Big Bopper and Richie Valens and dying a plane crash at the height of their careers. You know, something like crazy like that. So, all right, it's a little solemn, a little downer, but we're going to pick it right back up again and have some fun here. Let's go over to the old YouTube page. Now, this isn't one of the ones that I mentioned, but it's one of the ones that uh, Pat had suggested to me when we decided we were going to do this. So, this is February 2nd, a a scant four months before uh, I would enter the world. 1976, Madison Square Garden, Bruno San Martino versus superstar Billy Graham. Hulk Hogan, eat your heart out. Uh, quick 50 words or less. Why this match? Of all the matches, why this match? I wanted to get one of Bruno in his glory as champion. I wanted to get one with an opponent that he had great chemistry with. I wanted to get one before he had broken his neck and really just toned down a lot of what he did and played it safe um, in the ring. And I think this paints a good picture of the performer Bruno was. And Graham... Great charisma, hard bump taker, but not uh, a, a mat wizard or technician or anything. But the stuff he can do with Billy is really great in this, and I just I think it's a very good match. Uh, it's one of the ones that's harder to find in terms of availability, but good quality. So I, I thought it was a good choice. All right, uh, let's count down here. Three, two, one. Press play. Are you ready? Yes. Three, two, one. Press play. And we see uh, Superstar getting <laughs> right away. Right, right away, we start here with him grabbing the ropes and doing the uh, chicken shit heel routine. And, and, and you look at 
you look at the two physiques and Bruno going to work on him. Bruno looks like a the world's strongest man. Billy Graham looks like Mr. Olympia, and Graham takes a hell of a backdrop. Mm-hmm. Well, but that's it. what makes the matchup so cool, like when you see the poster. Mm-hmm. You know, Bruno's, oh, oh, good shot. Bruno's always been the world's strongest man to these people, but you see Graham chiseled out of stone. Here's somebody people can buy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a great matchup because Bruno... Uh, doesn't have a tremendously defined physique, but he is clearly—he's got that Rusev body. Um, you know, he—he he looks like a big, tough man. Whereas superstar Billy Graham has more definition. He's—he's—he's de- he's, he's more magazine pretty. He's got a magazine pretty body. Uh, yeah, very, very, Mr. Very, Olympia versus the world's strongest man. It's exactly as you said before. You know, for the first part of this match here, Billy Graham was doing that chicken shit heel routine. He was putting up his hands. He was begging off. You know, I, 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 Jim Cornette talks about this all the time. It's the lost art of getting heat, getting real heat from an audience. And and here you have an audience that you know wants to see a fight. They want to see you know they want to see tough guys beat each other up. And you have one guy who's begging and pleading and cowering away. That that's enough to piss anybody off. It's it's called the wrestling term is called showing your ass, and uh, <laughs> basically it means you know getting your pants pulled down a little bit, looking embarrassed and and afraid, and and being okay with getting heat that way, which a lot of guys are, you know, too into themselves and don't get. And Graham being you know a crowd psychologist pulling the ropes for leverage and working Bruno over on, and going to work on Bruno's leg, and. Now, this is a normal occurrence every day now, but using the post was a big deal uh, up until, like, 1990. And he just ran Bruno into it twice. He saw the referee actually jump out of the ring to try to reprimand him and stop him from doing it. You know, again, I hate to bring up uh, Jim Cornette again, but, um, by the way, I got a message from Jesse that said ex- that wanted me to tell you extra pickle, motherfucker. Um <laughs> But, uh, you know, this is one of the things that Jim Cornette talks about, and that is working a match, in which case you're, you're drawing reactions from the fans, fans that paid money, fans that will pay money for the next match because you got them so worked up and so involved versus a gymnastics routine where two guys try to get all their shit in, their shit yeah. in their moves. And you'll get Graham. Graham just took a knee off the rope, and now he's doing a little bit of the Kurt Henning uh, hold on to the ropes and take a kick to the back of the leg, and... And look at Bruno still selling the leg. It's been worked mm-hmm. on. Sure, not, not for nothing. But if you get if you really get kicked in the thigh, it hurts and you'll limp. <laughs> you know, it doesn't just go and away. Now, and now Bruno going to be that baby face that fights fire with fire. He's going to mm-hmm. take Graham out to the post here and uh, do some posterizing of the knee of his own. Now, did you notice that that was very visible? Where the knee doesn't touch the pole at all. It's the back of the. It was the back of the boot. That, yeah, and then uh, it's an MSG at this time. They had uh, arenas had specific rings, and that ring, the posts actually had that extra bit of wiring on the outside of it. So that's really kind of where you're you're getting your your the meat of your leg into mm-hmm. is that kind of almost wire touch as opposed to the hard metal pole. So let's talk about this because this is another one of those lost arts: working a body part. All right. I'm not going to ask. And, and selling. Look at Bruno. He's limping mm-hmm. off because he just kicked and he had to put weight on his leg. Right, right. But he has been he has been working Billy Graham's uh, left leg for the majority of this match, getting it getting it nice and sore 
for you know for possibly a uh, a, a finishing maneuver on the leg, you know, a submission move of some kind. This is what wrestling used to be, children. Uh, and and Graham, practitioner of the bear hug, as his finish, put it on Bruno, but Bruno's no stranger to the bear hug either and hit a nice little judo throw to get out of it. I can, I can truly appreciate a match like this because you, there are very definitive things that they're doing that, you know, that, that, you know, that harken back to the golden age of wrestling that, it's, that you just don't see now. It's, 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 you know, if you, and I don't know if, uh, if somebody watching, you know, a young kid watching the WWE now could really even appreciate what it is that we're looking at here. As you see uh, superstar Billy Graham apply the old full Nelson. I've put Jonas in that many times. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, break Jonas out of it, kid! On everybody who's who's of toddler age, just so you know, <laughs> my little four-year-old. He just turned four, and he has. Uh, I, I have put him in quite quite a number of full Nelsons and uh, and, and leg locks and whatnot. And look at look at Bruno just looking like a, a shaved ape man, just trying to power out of this. <laughs> That's right. He just, he was standing over Graham at one point, and the camera was focused on, and he just. He had his traps pumped up and his shoulders up. I said, damn, that looks like a man. You know what's weird about this, though? And, and, I, and I hate to kind of, like, pull the curtain back, but, you know, Bruno's not going after the fingers at all. The first thing Jonas does whenever I put him in a full house is he'll start trying to pry my fingers out. But uh, not, not Bruno here. Bruno's, no, trying, Bruno's trying to think, wrench his arms down. But that's, that's the story here, too, is, is Graham came into the territory talking about how he's stronger than Bruno. And he's going to prove it. So Bruno's got to do this the hard way. He's got to power out. He's got to show he's still the man. Right. And he's still the, the guy with the world record bench press. Right. No and he's trying. No but small, he can't do it. No small joint manipulations here. No, we're going to power out of this using our traps. To be fair, that small joint manipulation was also illegal for years and years. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, here we go again. This is where we get the. This is where we get more heat. You know where we uh, we get sympathy for the babyface as the as the superstar Billy Graham uses that full Nelson and almost has Bruno out, but Bruno is, <laughs> as modern terminology would call it, hulking out, hulking up. Oh, and he turns the tables on superstar. Look at that. We don't have the sound on, but I'm sure people erupted. Yeah, the heat was this was a uh, pretty molten for this, uh, <laughs> and and this is a match where Bruce Pritchard said Bruno had come down to Houston and wrestled Billy Graham and said that it was 20 minutes of bear hugs and that the crowd didn't care for it and it put him to sleep. And, you know, we call BS on a lot of stuff Bruce says. And the amount of matches these guys have had that are available, I've never seen one that was 20 minutes of bear hugs. Like, this is, this is a hold that's gone on for an extended period of time, the full Nelson and the switch. But it's not without reason. It's telling the story between them. That may just be me saying that, but if you look at it, Bruno's trying to maintain the advantage he now has, even though he's at a leverage disadvantage, just through strength, because no, that was Bruno's shtick. I don't disagree with you. I'm sorry. I got distracted because I, I think a co-worker was trying to get a hold of me. Um, but, uh, no, I absolutely agree with you. There's a story. Look, you don't need, 
you know, 106 uh, shooting star presses and moonsaults to tell the story. They're telling the story with this one move. You're the heel who had the advantage, who was trying to prove, as you said before, that he's the stronger of the two. And the babyface almost went out. He almost lost the damn match. But up, he turned and switched. You know, and now he's going to turn the tables on the heel. And the heel is trying to figure out how to get out. And and now the heel can't power out. He's got to grab a rope and get it broken up by the referee. See, there's the subtle difference. And it's something you have to pay attention to. You know, is it, you know, is it a guy going through the table being set on fire, uh, you know, while, while it's dark out and there are wolves after him? No, but it doesn't have to be either. And they're both shaking it out and kind of stretching the neck a little bit to sell what had just happened to make you not think that this was all just nothing. And Graham's applying a chokehold through the collar and elbow, which is pretty unique. You don't see this done often ever. And so Bruno's responding by grabbing a clump of hair on the side of his head. Oh, Bruno. No hair pulling. No hair pulling. Superstar Billy Graham using his uh, his strength there to try to put the hurt on Bruno. And, like, again, it's there, there's nothing overly complicated here, but what they're doing, everything is snug-looking. It's solid. They're making contact. They're giving you their bodies in terms of telling the story with them. And this is the stuff that Jim Cornette cries that we don't see anymore. And he's not necessarily wrong. You know, this is a very technical thing. And, and, it, and it shows that the, I, I tend to t- tend to pay attention to production. But this is all a single shoot. This is one yeah, this camera is a hard angle. Camera. Yeah. We are, we are not getting close-ups of faces here. We are not getting different angles. This is one shot, folks. One continuous shot. It's that wide, hard camera opposite the entryway of Madison Square Garden, which was pretty standard, and now you finally switch to the second camera. But, you know, you were going to get locked in pretty much to one area at a, for a long period of time because that's what the technology was available at the time. Right. And Oof. Graham doesn't learn from his prior mistake of coming off the top rope. He tries it again, and Bruno rolls through it. Oh. And now Bruno's just going to work on him. Uh, knocks Graham out of the ring. Uh, and he's going <laughs> to head, head into the post. Boy, would you say that just due to the the height of the feud and, and the feelings towards one another as, as portrayed in the story, that Bruno's doing some heelish things here? He's working a little heel just to show the crowd he means business against this guy? This isn't just it, a wrestling match? It is, and that's what people had come to at a certain point expect, that... At a certain point, Bruno's not going to put up with this stuff anymore, and he's just going to fight fire with fire, and he's going to make this guy sorry. He's not just going to get a pan, or he's not just going to make them give up. He's going to punish them and make them sorry for this affront that they even committed against him. Mm-hmm. And Graham is busted wide open. And we've got juice. Juice, Pat Mullen. And, and Bruno, I hope he th- he's got a... I love when Bruno kicks. He just, to me, like... he. He just put, like, he was this shorter guy. Bruno was about 5'11". And when he threw a kick at a guy in the stomach, he just flew across with this kick and just plants it right in the gut. It's one of the more, like, cool-looking kicks you'll ever see. Just always stuck with me. And they're going toe-to-toe. They are. They are. Dude, Bruno looks pissed. (laughs) Like, if you didn't know any better, you would think Bruno just lost his mind in the middle of this match. It was like, no, I'm going to beat the fuck out of this guy. Yeah, he's he's just not having any resistance to this. <laughs> Graham needs a turnbuckle. What the hell and just got thrown in the ring? It looked like a program. 
And the referee is going to stop it based on Graham bleeding out. Oh, is that where we are? It's a no contest? Look at that. And Arnold Stoland, the manager of champions, into the ring with the the latter-era WWF World Championship belt. And Bruno, jubilant, (laughs) hopping up and down, doing some tuck jumps in the ring. So and the what, crowd just standing and clapping. So was that ruled a no contest, or, or did he he won uh, like Bruno won via stoppage on cuts? All right, and I think that brings us to the end here. I mean, at least, well, at least the end of the action. But you know, it's it's an interesting way to get. Uh, I don't know. If, I, I doubt this was the end of the feud between these two. Oh no no no! This the, just went on for another. Well, for on and off for another year and a half, and then even beyond that. Yeah, this is a great way to keep you know keep the feud going, keep keep superstar protect superstar because you don't want to have him beat clean in the middle of the ring. You know, you, here you get a situation where you know where where Graham's I'm sure yelling into the mic, "Hey, you know, I can keep going. What the hell?" And of course, they're going to keep going right forward. here. And that didn't work out too well for him. Nope, and he did a very heelish thing here. A couple of cheap shots, and then he takes a powder. And off he goes into the darkness. <laughs> Good stuff here. All right, um, that was fun. I enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed. We haven't done a commentary in a while, so I'm glad we were able to do that one. Pat, any uh, last words, burning desires, or you know what you want to send us out on? Um, just one of the sad things, and, and you know we covered a fun match. Most of Bruno's prime isn't even available on video because the '60s. There was so much you couldn't do. If you want a good idea of Bruno and his prime, you can check out. There's actually a full-length, almost hour-long match between Bruno and Giant Baba from Japan in the 60s. It's really fun to see Bruno in that role doing a lot of stuff. Um, just th- There are so many accomplishments that Bruno has that I, I think get glossed over. He's sold out Madison Square Garden more times than anybody. Yes, the 187 number is not accurate. However, the real number is in dispute because records were not kept for so long. And until 1973, you couldn't be under 16 years old and attend a a wrestling match at Madison Square Garden based on prior riots. So he's literally only drawing adults to these shows and still selling them out. Bruno set the world bench press record at 565 pounds in a situation where you had to take that weight, pull it down to your chest, pause with it, and the judges would count one 1,000, two 1,000, and clap, and as soon as they clapped, you were able to push the weight back up off your chest. And you couldn't arch with it, you had to have strict form. And he set the world record while not even pursuing that full time. It, it, it's, you know, he was a huge draw in Australia for Jim Barnett, so much so that when Jim Barnett promoted in the States again and he wanted Bruno to come, because Barnett had been one of the promoters who agreed to his blackballing, Bruno could hold him up for any amount of money he wanted and Barnett would pay him because he knew he would sell out. Bruno could call his own shots with basically any promoter, including the Sheik. Bruno and the Sheik did sell out business in Madison Square Garden. Sheik told Bruno, hey, you come to Detroit, we'll sell out, I'm going to give you two grand. And this was at a time when the Sheik was having a war with Dick the Bruiser over territory uh, boundaries. So the Sheik brought Bruno in, they have a sellout, great match. Sheik gives Bruno his envelope, it's only 800 bucks. (laughs) At that point, Bruno says, okay. So the Sheik calls him and says to book, he's going to book him for... Next month, and we're going to do it again. Bruno says, I'll take the booking. 
And that's the only time Bruno never showed up for another booking that he had booked because he felt that she could screw him over on a $1,200 amount, said, screw that, I'm going to go work for Bruiser. And Bruno and Dick the Bruiser went ahead and had the best houses in Indianapolis history teaming up together to wrestle Ernie Ladd and Baron Von Raschke, the Valiant Brothers, and the Blackjacks managed by one Bobby Heenan. Um, he, he, he was literally the only guy besides Andre that could go into any territory call his shot, and they would all agree to it because that's how important he was. That's the figure he was. And it's just incredible that a guy who nearly died at the age of 13, living on eating, eating snow in the mountains for sustenance, could propel himself to that level. Now, you talk about Mount Rushmore's, etc. You can't have a Mount Rushmore wrestling without Bruno because Bruno... Bruno brought credibility to it, too, on a national level. He did an episode of Greatest Sports Legends, which was the premiere show where they talked to the best athletes of the day and interviewed them and everything, hosted by Tom Seaver, Hall of Fame pitcher. They had Bruno on. You're going to tell me that this guy wasn't the biggest deal when he's being interviewed and things like that? He, he was a judge for the Mr. Olympia contest that launched the career of Arnold Schwarzenegger. He, he was so varied and so respected over so many levels that he's just a special once-in-a-lifetime kind of performer that, you know, unfortunately in our lifetime, we're probably not going to see something like him again. No, and that's a shame for everybody who wants somebody to look to who represents themselves with integrity, honesty, and hard work and determination. He's the embodiment of that. And I'm just so glad he got to mend fences with WWE and get recognized while he still had some years left. And one of the coolest things, and I'll, I know I'm going on here, Bruno, when he mended fences, they, would, they signed him to a Legends contract where he would do appearances and such. Bruno had a condition that if it was on a Saturday, the appearance had to be early because he was never going to miss date night with his wife at their favorite Italian restaurant in Pittsburgh on Saturday which they'd been doing since the day they got married. Aw, that's really sweet and very, very cool. Well, Pat, we've been at this for a little over an hour now, and I think it's time to wrap it up. I really appreciate your fandom, your enthusiasm, and your insistence that we remember one of the greats in not just professional wrestling, but one of the great entertainers uh, in the 20th century. And I hope that with the WWE Network and YouTube... And you know the the you know the, even a little bit of this show, just the tiny less than one percent. This show that people take all of these things and learn what they can about Bruno San Martino and appreciate him as much as you have, uh, and you've been able to talk about tonight. So thank you for coming on here, you know, and sharing your thoughts and some and your stories and your knowledge of Bruno San Martino on TV Party tonight. Um. So let's get into plugs real quick. I don't want to belabor this, but uh, Monday we did a source material. Um, uh, gosh, what was one up this week? Uh, Thanos Rising in honor of Infinity War. We did a review for Infinity War where we had some friends of the show come on. We had Alexis Haina of uh, Honeysuckle Rose Creation and David Wright, uh, one of our fans of a fan, uh, fans of the network, uh, as we like to say in our in our Canada office. Last night we reviewed Godsmack When Legends Rise on the Metal Hammer of Doom. Uh, Pat, what do you got going on in your world? 
Are we getting a casual heroes reunion or or what here? What what's happening? That's resting right now on Gavin and Chris. Gavin is telling us that Chris has some new recording equipment, and we're just waiting on a start date for that. I uh, you know am down anytime he wants to. I've made that pretty clear that I am absolutely up for this reunion. I am not going to be the the Axl Rose or the David Lee Roth or the Sammy Hagar. I want this to happen. Um, and I don't have any terms either. I'm, I'm good whenever. <laughs> we can do this. Um, aside from that, I have sort of been back on a semi-regular basis to the 411 Ground and Pound Radio. Um, scheduling conflicts have been really tough uh, with making that show, but Robert always does a great job on it. And I, I, I still listen in even when I'm not on it. Um, it's just a very good show for a, a sport that can really uh, test your patience and interest <laughs> levels. Uh, yep. Yeah. Um, of course, I've done a couple of Screaming Boys recently, including Let's All Go to the Arcade. Um, hey, Mark, remember that show we did about Toys R Us? Yeah, it's up now. You got, we got to move on to a new joke here. Uh. We've got the show on Toys R Us up, ladies and gentlemen. That is a fun <laughs> one that both Mark and myself were on on the Screaming Boy podcast. Uh, I also did an episode with Mark of Source Material just recently with Jesse Starcher where we talk about the original Infinity Gauntlet miniseries from 1991 that plays so heavily into the current number one movie ever, Infinity War. That's right. It's number two for the year right now, but it won't be number two for very long. Right, right behind Black Panther. Um, so we're going to get Pat on here again real soon. Pat and I decided that we need to talk about Cobra Kai. So I got to start watching it, and we got to figure out when we're going to watch that. Of course, uh, later this year, we'll get some Fuller House on here, and we'll figure out some more stuff for Pat to come on. Pat and I you know, like to get together and talk about tings, big tings, as Skindred says. So uh, that wraps it up here. For the Punchy Pugilist, Totally 80s, Pat Mullen, I'm your mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radulich. This has been TV Party Tonight. Remembering Bruno San Martino, be well, be safe, and behave. Today's sales leaders face a difficult task, selling the right products at the right time through the right channels. A new three-day program from Harvard Business School Executive Education addresses this problem directly. Join us on the Boston campus in August for Managing Sales Teams and Distribution Channels, where you will discover strategies that can lead to the best sales performance. Learn more by clicking the banner or visiting hbs.me sales. That's hbs.me sales.